The story's told of a famous escape artist named Harry Houdini. At each stop on his tours, he boasted that there had never been a lock that he couldn't pick or a jail that he couldn't break out of. He dared anyone to prove otherwise. Well, once a London bank wanted to show off their new state-of-the-art locking system on their new vault. Houdini was given three and a half minutes to complete his escape. As with all his dangerous stunts, Houdini had one stipulation written into his contract that before starting, he could kiss his wife goodbye, just in case. But Houdini would always get more than a kiss from his wife. While their lips were locked, Mrs. Houdini would pass Harry a small piece of wire that he could use to pick the lock. Well, Houdini, he worked feverishly to try to get this lock on the tumblers to turn. After a minute or two, he didn't hear the familiar clicking of the tumblers. After two minutes, there was still no sound. By this point, the great Harry Houdini had broken out in an intense sweat. Would this be the end of his career? Had he finally met his match? As he pulled a rag out of his pocket to wipe the sweat off his forehead, he sort of leaned a little against the door, and guess what? It creaked open. Houdini never heard the click of the tumblers opening because the door had never been locked. And this is the problem with many of us. Jesus has freed us from bondage. The power of the cross has broken our chains. Satan has been defeated in our lives. We should be free. But the reason we're not is that we've chosen to believe a lie rather than trust in the truth. As Jesus teaches us, it is the truth that sets us free. We continue tonight here in chapter 8. We pick up where we left off last week in verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. To abide means to rest or to trust. But I think the best way to understand this word is with a word picture. Think of climbing into a hammock. There you go. Lying in a hammock isn't like sitting on a stoop. Take a sit and you're still in control. But when you jump into a hammock, when you throw yourself into a hammock, you lose control. All of a sudden, you're enveloped in that hammock. You have to trust it to hold you up. You're you're not in and out of a hammock. It keeps you. It becomes a place of rest. It's a place to relax. It's a place to lean. It's a place to stay. It's a place where you're supported by the strength of something else. This is what it means to abide. Think of the words of Jesus as a hammock. Rest in His promises. Release yourself to His control. This is what He means by abide. If you abide in My Word... You are my disciples indeed. Real disciples abide in the words and in the love and in the strength of Jesus. Verse 32 tells us, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, truth brings freedom because it's deception that enslaves. Men submit to slavery when they believe that they have no other alternative. 
Lies are the chains of bondage. And Jesus tells us that it's His truth. If we follow in His ways, it's His truth that leads to abundant life. You know, people get stuck. People get trapped when they seek truth apart from Jesus. When they buy into the lies of Satan or buy into the lies of this world. Now remember, Jesus is teaching in the temple. His audience is really twofold. His disciples on the one hand and the Jews who are listening, they're, they're also listening in to Jesus' teaching. And here is where the Jews step up. They chime in. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Oh boy, their pride, their prejudice. Hey, even Jewish patriotism had swelled up within them. We're Abraham's kids. We can't be free because we've never been slaves. And how in the world could they have made this statement? Were they ignorant of their history? 600 years prior, Babylon sacked Jerusalem and took the Jews captive to Babel. They were in bondage for 70 years. Since that time, Israel had been a province of Persia, then Greece. Even as they spoke, there was a battalion of Roman legionnaires that occupied a fortress, the Antonio Fortress, on the Temple Mount, just a few yards away from where they stood. For the last six centuries, Israel had been at best a political puppet. Obviously, they were in bondage. The truth of the matter is that they were in bondage also to their own pride. And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And, and here's the real bondage. It's spiritual slavery. You've, you've probably heard the line, Stone walls do not make a prison, nor iron bars a cage. You know, real prison cells are constructed out of faithlessness and fear and tainted perspectives and foolishness and deception and disobedience. Understand this. Every time you give in to sin, it gets harder the next time to say no. Every time. You allow that chain to get thicker and thicker and thicker. You weaken your resistance to the point where you end up with the backbone of a jellyfish. People don't start out that way, but they get that way over time. And these freedom-loving Jews, they were slaves, slaves to their own sin and their own prejudice. You know, the prisons of the soul are the worst prisons of all. And they're created when we believe and when we act on lies. You see, it's the truth about me and you and God that sets us free, that makes us real. When a man sees that truth, that in Christ there is forgiveness, there's victory, there's, there's true power over sin. When, when he sees that these truths are genuine and relevant, then suddenly he is on the verge of experiencing true freedom. It's Jesus and his words that set us free. Now Jesus adds verse 35. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. See, a slave can please his master from time to time, but he can never obtain family status 
or a permanent place in his master's house. Only a son knows that he's part of the family, come what may. And only Jesus, God's son, can give us that assurance, can give that kind of confidence to his people. Hey, when you become a Christian, you become in Christ, which means you're treated by God just as he treats Jesus. And that, my friend, is real freedom. Have you been believing the lies? Have you been believing lies from your past? Have you been believing the lies of this world? Have you been believing the lies of some person who's haunted you all your life? You can't get their words out of your mind. Even though you know they're not true, you still keep remembering those words. Have you been believing lies? It's time for you to stand up and put your faith and trust and abide in the truth and words of Jesus Christ. If the Son makes you free... You shall be free indeed. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Jesus said, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, You would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You know, Jesus is implying here that there's a big difference between pedigree and parentage. I mean, you can have a man's DNA, but that doesn't mean that he raised you. And this was true of the Jews. Oh, they had Abraham's DNA. They were genetically connected to Abraham. But they weren't spiritually connected. They didn't have his faith. After the DNA, that's where the resemblance ceased. Jesus tells them, you do the deeds of your father. And he was about to identify the father who had raised them. (laughs) And and when you... uh, What he's about to get in is, is a powerful, powerful thing. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Oh my. They just insulted Jesus. Did you hear it? You see, the Jewish leaders, they had heard of Mary's divine conception and Jesus' virgin birth, but they didn't believe. And now, here they are casting aspersions on the legitimacy of Jesus' birth. You know, it's pretty tacky for a group of distinguished priests to resort to denigrating a person's mother. That's what they're doing to Jesus here. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Remember, no other human came from God. Jesus is speaking here of his divine origin. Jesus is the one person who pre-existed before his birth. No other human being can say that, that they came from God. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And here, Jesus lowers the boom and drops the bomb right here. They have a father all right, these Jews. He says, you are of your father, the devil. 
and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's a great way to win some friends and influence people right there. Yeah, you got a father all right. Your father is the devil. And when Jesus spoke of the devil, remember, he had firsthand knowledge. Jesus knew this guy. Jesus has been dealing with this guy for a long time. In fact, he continues speaking of Satan. He says, and when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Oh boy, Satan is so skilled at spinning a lie. And these Jews were just like him. They were the spitting image of the devil, Jesus says. He was a liar and a murderer from the start. You remember the first homicide? A lot of people say it was Cain and Abel. Not so. It occurred earlier. The first homicide, the first murder in the Bible was in the Garden of Eden when the devil tried to snuff out Adam and Eve. He succeeded spiritually. They died spiritually when they fell victim to his temptation. And, and how did they get Adam and Eve to sin? How did Satan do it? It was through lies and deception. Jesus says he's been speaking lies from the very beginning. Remember God told the first couple, eat the forbidden fruit and you will surely die. It was Satan who countered, oh, you will not surely die. A patented lie. He's been telling them ever since. Satan is the father of lies. Hey, Satan doesn't play by the rules. His temptations are potent because they contain elements of truth, but then they're laced with lies. See, Satan is the master of the half-truth. That's the worst kind of a lie, one that's sort of got truth mixed in. Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And let, let me just warn you, he's wily. He's subtle, he's tricky, he's deadly. He is a liar and he is a murderer. The Jews had followed in Satan's footsteps. Throughout the feast, they had entertained falsities and wrong judgments and they had even plotted to kill Jesus. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. They were so used to lies, they didn't recognize the truth when Jesus spoke it to them. He continues, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? In other words, you can't deny me, but you won't believe me. I mean, they had worked themselves into a corner. He says, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon now, they've already tried to discredit Jesus by insulting his mother. Now, now, they resort to racial slurs and blasphemy. Jews were prejudiced, remember, against Samaritans. And so to accuse Jesus, what did they do? They accused him of, having a, of being a Samaritan. And then they accused him of having a demon, which was nothing short of blasphemy. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, 
he shall never see death. What a bold claim that is. Jesus grants eternal life. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my words, he shall never see death. By the day's end, not everyone believed in Jesus, but trust me, no one was confused about his claims. Jesus claimed to be God. Verse 52, then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Now remember, the Jews revered Abraham and the prophets. They revered them next to the angels. Abraham was God's friend, their father. And yet both Abraham and the prophets were subject to death. How can Jesus then grant eternal life? Here's what that means. It means that Jesus was greater than Abraham. That's what they needed to get. Well, they ask, are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? They're on it. They understand the issues. Are you greater than the prophets who are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me. Of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, shall I be a liar like you? But I do know him, and I keep his word. And here Jesus drops another bomb. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Actually, Jesus had seen Abraham on a number of occasions. He had appeared to him in the Old Testament. You remember in Genesis chapter 18, three visitors came to Abraham's tent when he was there in Mamre. If you go back and if you read the language, one of those men speaks for God in the first person. He speaks as if he is God himself. It was Jesus. It was clearly the pre-incarnate Christ. You know, it's also possible that the high priest Melchizedek, whom Abraham went out and paid tithes to Melchizedek, it's possible that he was a pre-Bethlehem appearance of God's son, Jesus. Oh yes, Abraham saw Jesus. And if Jesus' previous statements were bombshells, here he drops the nuke, baby, right here, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This was the name that the one true God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh identified himself, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And now Jesus uses the same name, I am, and he applies it to himself. Hey, Jesus is is removing all doubt. He's being crystal clear. In essence, Jesus is saying that he is the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. He is the God who led Israel out of Egypt. He is the one true God. Of course, this was more than these narrow, pigeonhole-minded Jews could even bear. They knew exactly what he had said. And this is why suddenly they reach down and they pick up rocks in order to stone him. Then they took up stones to stone at him, to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. 
and so passed by. I think it was a miracle. Think about it. These were angry men. They had rocks in their clenched fists. They were mad. They weren't going to just let Jesus walk away. But somehow, like Moses parting the Red Sea, evidently Jesus split the crowd and he walked out of the temple unharmed. Apparently a supernatural shield just sort of protected him. You ever had that shield protect you? In an accident? (laughs) From some danger? I have. Apparently Jesus just walked through the crowd unharmed, untouched. As a side note, John records seven I am statements made by Jesus in his gospel. In John 6, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. In chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. All I am statements. Jesus claimed to be the one true God here in the Gospel of John. One day, my 12-year-old son, Zach, asked me to hold his glasses. And just for kicks, I took his glasses... And I just sort of slipped them over my head like this. Oh my. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that the whole world was sharper than I'd been seeing. I didn't wear glasses at the time. Zach's 12, he's got his little glasses. I just sort of just just poked through them, peeked through them. Oh my. This means I must need glasses. Well, a few months later, you know, it's hard to accept this. You know that. It's just hard to accept that you, that you finally need glasses. And so a few months later, I set up an eye exam. And, and, I, and I remember sitting there with the optometrist who confirmed the diagnosis. Yes, Sandy, you need glasses. And, and I told him, I said, Doc, this just can't be. I've always had 20-20 vision. What's going on here? What's happening to me? And his answer was so depressing. He said, well, Sandy, you know, when you get older... Your eyes just start to deteriorate. Hey, who's getting older? And yet you do get older. Eventually you go blind. And it's tough to accept. And yet here in chapter 9, we find a man who had no problem accepting his blindness because he had lived with this handicap his whole life. He had never known anything other than blindness. Chapter 9, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Did you know that every 20 minutes someone in the United States goes blind? It's a terrible tragedy to lose your sight. But there's one situation that's worse. And that's to never have had the opportunity to see in the first place. Think of being born blind. I mean, you live your whole life having never seen a sunset or a dogwood blossom or the smile on a giggly child. You know, a man born blind, he has no reference point. 
He has no recollections to draw on. He has no paints or no brushes to sort of color in the pictures on the canvas of his imagination. His mental images all look alike. They're just gray and empty and blank. And such was this man's sad lot in life. He had been born blind. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what a contrast here. As, as we'll learn, Jesus looked at this man and thought of alleviating his suffering, while his disciples look at him and they think of a fixing blame. What a difference. One wants to alleviate suffering, one wants to affix blame. Jesus is asking, how can I help? The disciples are asking, who can we condemn? The disciples were only reflecting the current understanding of disease and suffering among the Jews at the time. You see, the rabbis believed that every illness, every natural disaster was caused by some specific sin. They were like Job's counselors who tried to pin a sin on Job to try to explain away his calamity. You see, sin and suffering supposedly had sort of a cause and effect, a direct cause and effect relationship. In the Jewish mentality, tornadoes touched down on evildoers. Cancers struck carnal people. Heart attacks happened to heathen people. Forest fires destroyed faithless people. In fact, one Jewish rabbi commented, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. Other rabbis went so far as to teach that a child could even sin in utero and be punished for that with a physical defect, a handicap. Other Jewish rabbis were just plain cruel. They asserted that if a child was born with some disorder, it had to be the result of their parents' sin. Imagine being the parent and having to live with that kind of a a burden your whole life. You see, the disciples here were only echoing the erroneous theological theories of their day. Now in verse 3, Jesus answered, Wait a minute. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now Jesus shoots down all of this rabbinical logic. Birth defects and incurable diseases and natural disasters can't always be pinned to a particular sin. These kinds of things may not be due to some specific sin. You know, when sin entered the world, the whole created order became subject to randomness and futility. Theologians call it the fall. Everything fell. As a result today... Mother Nature doesn't always work in conjunction with Father God. You think you and your wife have problems? Well, I mean, Mother Nature doesn't always follow suit with Father God. Not, not that they're related in any, that's just an expression. You know what I'm saying, Mother, you, you know what I mean. I'm not teaching false doctrine or anything. I mean, nature doesn't always... Uh, The creation doesn't always function in harmony with the Creator. Why? Because sin spoiled that relationship. The whole creation failed. And and suffering is now the leading fallout of the fall. It's the residual effect 
So, so not, all, not every earthquake is tied to a culture's particular sin. Not every sickness is tied to a person's particular sin. Sometimes it happens randomly. It's the way nature works today. It, it's become disconnected from its creator. Creation's disconnected from its creator. That, that's why things sometimes happen. In fact, seldom does God deliberately and specifically inflict a sentence of pain. But he does deliberately and specifically take our pain and use it for his glory. He does do that. In his commentary on Job, author Frank Anderson writes, The Bible explains suffering not so much in origins as in goals. The purpose of pain is seen not in its cause, but in its results. The man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. The disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? And Jesus answered, that doesn't matter. The why doesn't matter. What counts is how God is going to use the situation to bring himself glory. You see, God allowed this man to be born blind so the people in the temple that day and people throughout the ages since then might behold the wonders of his son Jesus. Now here a man was born blind, but he encounters a man who can turn on the lights. A sensational miracle occurs and a spiritual message follows. In verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. You know, one of the marks of Jesus' ministry, I think, was his sense of urgency. The sun rises and the sun sets. The day has a beginning and it has an ending. And likewise, the plans of God, they have a start and they have a finish. And when the sun goes down on the last day, all of those who were not saved will never be saved. That should create in all of us a sense of urgency. Like Jesus, we need to be busy doing the works of God. Works of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. I think George Mueller put it all in perspective when he wrote, When the day of recompense comes, our only regret will be that we have done so little for him, not that we have done too much. Don't you agree? You see, right now it's daytime. But friend, the night is coming. At the outset of the Civil War, General George McClellan was the commander of the Yankee troops. McClellan was by nature an overly precautious man. And so for months, he refused to move his troops into battle. His inactivity angered and frustrated President Lincoln. To the point where Lincoln finally wrote McClellan. And he said, my dear McClellan, if you don't want to use the army, I'd like to borrow it for a while. Respectfully yours, Abraham Lincoln. King Jesus likewise gets frustrated with our inactivity. With his army not being willing to move out. What are you waiting on? Don't you think it's past time to move out? And start serving the Lord, start letting our light shine, start telling our friends about the wonderful forgiveness that we've experienced. We all need that sense of urgency in our walk and in our witness. Now verse 5 stirred up the faith of the blind man. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Did the blind man wonder what was coming next? When Jesus had said these things, 
he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now here's one mudslinging campaign that ends with a happy ending. These miracle mud packs, they had special meaning, symbolic meaning. You see, spit was considered by the ancients to be the essence of a man, the spirit of a man, the life of the man that had been put there by God. Dirt was the symbol of the body, the flesh. Adam was formed from the dirt, from the dust of the ground. And so the method that Jesus chose for this miracle was his way of illustrating the origin of his ministry and the source of his power. He was God mixed with dirt. That's what Jesus was. He contained the divine spit, but he also contained the human clay. And so Jesus spits into the ground, he forms the clay, and then he smears it over this man's eyes. Verse 7. And Jesus said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. All of Jesus' miracles were staged to prove that he had been sent from God and by God. And so he went and washed And he came back seeing. I mean, the blind guy, he now has 20-20 vision. And I hope you know the spit was not necessarily it. You know that, don't you? In Mark 10, Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. Remember how he did it? Did he spit in the dirt and form the mud? No, he just spoke the word. It wasn't the spit. It was the power of God that opened the man's eyes. You know, the ancients believed that human saliva had medicinal purposes. That's why when you, when you wound your hand or you scrape something, when you're a kid, sometimes you'll spit on it. Just spit on it, it'll feel better. Well, that kind of harkens back, you know. People used to think that, that spit had medicinal purpose, curative purposes. Jesus used the mud pack, something tangible, in order to stir up and stimulate the man's faith. This is what was going on in the book of Acts. You remember when Paul's handkerchiefs were used by the people? Peter's shadow. They got in Peter's shadow and when Peter walked by, he, he was healed. It wasn't the shadow that healed them. It wasn't Paul's handkerchiefs that healed them. But God used these tangible points of reference to stir up their faith so they could trust in the power of God. And here Jesus uses the mud over the eyes in order to stir up this man's faith. Verse 8 tells us, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How will your eyes open? And throughout chapter 9, you're going to notice everyone is concerned with the how this miracle took place. And that seems to always be the case. We're intrigued by the mechanics of the miracle. But God wants us interested in the message behind the miracle. You know, if you could figure out how a miracle happened, it wouldn't be a miracle, would it? The question any miracle should ask is not how, but who. Notice that, same three letters. The H and the O and the W, just, just change the order. Put the W in front of the, the H. Change the how to a who. And you're on the road of faith. 
You see, the who of the miracle was much more important than the how. Well, the man answered and said, A man called Jesus, made clay, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Verse 12. Then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. And as we move through chapter 9, I want you to watch the progression in this man's relationship with Jesus. It's really fascinating. In verse 11, he calls Jesus a man. In verse 17, the man says, he is a prophet. In verse 27, he views Jesus as a man of such stature that he would attract disciples. In verse 33, he calls Jesus a man from God. And then finally in verse 38, he calls him the Son of God, worthy to be worshipped. The man's faith is growing throughout this, this exchange. Verse 13. Well, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Well, wouldn't you know it? It was the Sabbath day again. Jesus always had this tendency. You know, Jesus can heal six days a week, seven days a week if he wants to. Why does he always pick the Sabbath? But I'll tell you why. He, 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 he meant on having these confrontations. He wanted to show the, the ridiculousness of the legalism of the Jews that would focus on technicalities and look past miracles. And then the Pharisees also asked him, saying, or asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And oh my, you know, it, it's always amazing to me how picky and how petty the legalist becomes. The rules grow so large in his mind that that's all he can see are the rules. The rules crowd out the love of God and they overshadow the power of God and they push away the wonder of God. It's just the rules to the legalist. These Jews were so narrow-minded and prejudiced that they looked past an obvious miracle and they focused on a mere technicality. I mean, when it's obvious here that God is at work, there, there comes a time when we should start questioning our technicalities. Is this really what matters? According to Sabbath tradition, Jesus was guilty here of three violations or acts of work. He made clay, strike one. He then applied it to the man's eyes. That was work. Strike two. And then he brought about the healing. Strike three. Dave, what happens when, when you got three strikes? You're out of there. <laughs> they had ignored the most obvious fact of all. A blind man could see. How do you strike out a guy who hits a home run? Verse 16 ends. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Apparently, some of the Jews were starting to see along with the man who had been born blind. The, the blind man was not the only man who had his eyes opened in this exchange. Well, they said to the blind, blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him 
that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. Now, you don't don't get a good impression of these parents. These are some deadbeat parents. And then his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, the Messiah, he would be put out of the synagogue. I mean, don't you think these parents should have been a little grateful? Don't you think they should have been quick to side with Jesus, to testify on behalf of Jesus for healing their son? Instead, these parents take the fifth. They pass the buck. Our son's a grown man. Let him speak for himself. Talk about some pathetic, proud parents. Yet their reaction really shouldn't shock us. They're the ones that had left their poor son on the street to beg for a living in the first place. Evidently, they were more concerned about their own reputation and their own social standing. Oh, heaven forbid we get kicked out of the synagogue and lose our friends. Who will we play tennis with? Oh, my. They denied Jesus for fear of the crowd. Though this man's blindness wasn't the result of his parents' sin, let me suggest many of our young people today are blind spiritually because they have a mom and a dad who are just as pathetic as these parents. Parents who value their popularity and their social standing above the truth. Parents who lack the courage to stand up for Jesus and even stand up for their own kids trust me, will probably produce superficial kids who will be blind to the things of God. Well, back to the trial, verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, tell us what we want to hear. That's what they're saying. You know, whether it's true or not. Then he answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. What a powerful testimony. It reminds me of a quote I heard years ago. A man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Isn't that the truth? He said, man, I I don't know a lot of this, but all I know is that Once I was blind, but now I see. I'm just not going to deny the miracle that's happened to me. I hope that's your case. I hope you don't deny the miracle that's happened to you. That that once you were blind spiritually, now you see. Once you were lost in your sin, now you're clothed in His righteousness. Once, Once you were as filthy rags, your righteousness was as filthy rags. Today, you're clothed in the robes of His righteousness. I hope you never deny that miracle. 
You know, the work of God always speaks louder than the skepticism of man. That's what this fellow is saying. Look, I, all I know is that miracles happen to me. Verse 26. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> and he says that sort of tongue-in-cheek, I'm sure. And oh my, it must have infuriated the Jews, don't you think? The blind man is mocking their own stubbornness. Well, then they reviled him and said, Oh, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. You know, if they would have been smart, they would have just stopped arguing with this guy. I mean, this guy's not the guy you want to argue with. A half hour earlier, the guy was blind as a bat. And now they want to debate Jesus' work in his life. They don't really have a leg to stand on here, do they? The Jews are about to prove that they're the real blind men. They argue. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Wow, this is a marvelous thing. And you guys have got to be kidding. That you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. You know, a man gives sight to a man born blind... And he's not from God? I mean, you don't make that connection? This man is about to give the theologians a much-needed lesson in some practical theology. Hopefully he opened a few eyes, blind eyes in the crowd as well. Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. You know, God's not obligated. To, sometimes he will, but he's not obligated to hear a sinner. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. God is far more inclined to hear a believer's prayer. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. And this is unprecedented. This is a miracle of unprecedented proportion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And the man's logic here is overwhelming. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Only the power of God can perform such an unprecedented miracle. They answered and said to him, uh, You were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. <laughs> Talk about being closed-minded. You know, they didn't like the message, so they just threw out the messenger. How pompous, how blind they had become. Bible scholar Alfred Edersheim, he tells us that the Jews had three kinds of excommunication. First was a simple rebuke. It lasted for seven days. They would sort of excommunicate you for seven days, sort of a probationary period. It was a mild form of discipline. The second form of excommunication was the admonition. And this is where the person was ostracized from the synagogue for 30 days. For 30 days, for a month, he was treated as an outcast and as a sinner. Finally, the more radical form of excommunication, the unrepentant person was cast out, or literally unsynagogued. He was cut off from the congregation forever. 
A person who was cast out was permanently alienated from the community for an indefinite period of time. No one was allowed to speak to that person or to eat with that person. They were literally considered dead, a dead person. Oftentimes you hear today where a person will give, a Jew will become a Christian and they'll be disavowed by their family. They'll be considered dead. That's the most severest form of excommunication. It seems that these Jews ran this man through all three phases at one time. In verse 18, they give him his rebuke. Then in verse 28, they admonish him or revile him. And then in verse 34, they just go ahead and throw him out for good. So it seems like they run through this process, you know, in in this one exchange. You know, it's just so sad that the first sight this man saw when his eyes were open were the venomous looks on these scrunched up faces of these angry and closed-minded Pharisees. That's just sort of sad to think about. Verse 35, it gets better for him. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Now, now I love the fact here that Jesus goes looking for this man. Notice, Jesus found him. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one lost sheep. That's his heart. You know, chapter 9 to me is a a harbinger of things to come. A man is cast out of Judaism, but he's welcomed by Jesus. This is the first example of many more to come. For after the resurrection, people would leave Judaism in droves to become members of Christ's church. It's interesting, living under legalism, this man was blind. But when Jesus entered his life, he suddenly could see. That's what legalism does to you. It creates a blindness, a callousness over your eyes. But Jesus opens blind eyes. Even today, the blind continue to receive their sight. Now he answered and said, Who is the Son of God? Who, who is He, Lord, that I may believe in Him? Verse 37, And Jesus said, You have both seen Him, and it is He who is talking with you. Now, now remember, the last time this man interacted with Jesus, he only heard His voice. He didn't actually see Jesus. He was still blind. But I'm sure he would never forget that voice. And now he sees him as well as hears him. And he looks into his eyes. He looks into his face. And he's reveling in this miracle. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You know, good Jews, they detested idolatry. In fact, by New Testament times, the Jews had been cured of their idolatrous tendencies that had brought on the judgment that they experienced in the Old Testament. Now they worshipped no one but God. And yet this man knew that he had found God in the person of Jesus. He wouldn't have worshipped Jesus if he didn't believe with all his heart that he was God. And it's interesting that Jesus does nothing to stop him because Jesus also knew that he was God and deserved to be worshipped. 
You remember in Acts chapter 14, after Paul healed the lame man there at the gate of Lystra, the men of the city, they all cried out, and they tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. But Paul shut it down. He went on to explain the gospel to them, and he emphasized that they were just men. They weren't to be worshipped. Jesus, on the other hand, allowed people to worship him. Why? Because he was God. He knew it, and now this blind man knows it. Verse 39, and Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Notice the miracle is always followed by a message. Miracles are intended to be teaching tools where God teaches us an important spiritual message. For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. I like what Philip Yancey writes here. He says, What began as a tragic tale of one man's blindness ends as a surreal tale of everyone else's blindness. Think about that. Once a newspaper reporter wrote a story about three little girls that he had seen outside of a toy store. One of the little girls was blind. And the other two girls were trying to describe the toys that they had just seen. But their efforts weren't working. This blind little girl, she was frustrated. And the reporter who saw this was touched by this scene. And he wrote of it that night in his column. Well, the same night, his story appeared in the newspaper. The same reporter was scheduled to attend one of D.L. Moody's evangelistic crusades. The reporter was a skeptic. And he intended to pick on the evangelist that night, to just pick him to pieces, to just write a critical, scathing report on what he was doing. But during his message, Moody, who had read the paper that day, used the reporter's own words from the paper, his story, to describe how difficult it is to explain the glories of Christ to someone who had never seen them for himself. Like the little girls trying to explain to the blind girl about the toys they'd just seen. Well, once again, the newspaper reporter was moved with emotion. He realized how blind he'd been. And he came forward at the invitation that night and received Christ. Jesus is telling us here, he's telling us tonight, that if you think you see, then you are really blind. But if you realize you're blind, then you can see. If you're proud, if you think you got it all together, if you think the correction is not for you, if you can't see your own weaknesses and your own frailties, You're blind as a bat, man. Remind your wife of that when you get home tonight. At your own peril. Remind your husband of that. No, don't remind your spouse of that. Remind yourself of that. If you think you've got nothing you can work on, nothing you can change, no flaws, no frailties, no faults of your own, you're blind, man, because it's not true. We're all fallible human beings. But it's it's when we're willing to look at ourselves objectively. It's when we're willing to receive criticism. It's when we're willing to think, well, maybe she's right. Maybe I should address that. Suddenly, my eyes are open and I can see. Verse 40, 
Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. See, the Pharisees were blind because they assumed they saw. And pride always causes spiritual blindness. The know-it-all person is the most ignorant for sure. It's only when we admit that we are all vision impaired, only then does God put the glasses on our eyes and helps us see. Well, there we have chapter 9. Next week, we'll start in chapter 10.